Hey, quick note up top here. We have a preview video on the Country Club at Brookline featuring drone footage and an interview with Gil Hance, and we will be premiering that video on the Fried Egg YouTube channel on Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern time. That's Wednesday, June 1st, 8 p.m. Eastern. All right, on with the pod. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison. I'm here today with Andy Johnson. How are you doing, Andy? You're outside. Yeah, I am. I, uh, you know, we're working on getting some Wi-Fi back to my back office at uh, at the new residence. And uh, in the meantime, I'm uh, I'm outside while my daughter takes a nap. I think anybody can appreciate <laughs> um, not wanting to wake up uh, a napping uh, almost two year old. So. Uh, we we are we're doing it out here. You can get the the nice ambiance of uh, of outdoors uh, in in this in this podcast. There you go, perfect ambiance for this podcast, which is about the Country Club at Brookline. This course is, I mean, basically all the important beats in golf history. Some version of each of those has occurred at the Country Club. It's it's pretty incredible. And uh, so obviously it's the the host of the 2022 U.S. Open coming up here in a couple of weeks. This is the first time it's hosted a U.S. Open since 1989. And uh, it's a pretty special place. Curtis Strange taking down Faldo. Yep, exactly. We've done, we've done spotlights on the shotgun start on both of those players. And we covered the 89 uh, U.S. Open in, in detail with the Curtis Strange one. So. It's a really interesting U.S. Open for a number of reasons, and I'll, I'll get into a couple of those. Um, obviously, two great players going head to head, but it's a little bit surprising to me that it's been that long because the the Country Club is such an important American course, and you know the Ryder Cup has been there since then. Memorable 1999 Ryder Cup, the Miracle of Brookline, but there has not been a U.S. Open there in in uh, more than 30 years. And so uh, it's a great opportunity to talk about this course, its history, and some of the recent work that has been done there by Gil Hance and his team, as we did with the Southern Hills podcast that we did in, in advance of the PGA Championship. We have a segment of an interview that we did with Gil Hance that's all about the country club, and we'll be playing that tape in this episode. And then you and I will discuss some things about the course as well. But first, just to kind of dig into some of the history a little bit, Country Club dates back to the 19th century. So this is this is one of the first American country clubs, if not the first. I, I'm not sure whether that claim can be made about it or not. But originally, this club was not about golf. It was It was really started in 1882. It was chartered a couple of decades before that, but they really got going in, in the 1880s and their focus was horseback riding and shooting and other outdoor sports that were not golf. And the reason for that is, is keep in mind at this time, golf is not very popular in America, but it explodes in popularity in the 1890s. And that is when the country club at Brookline 
made its first golf course, which started with six holes designed by Willie Campbell, who is one of these Scottish pros who came over and was, you know, really instrumental in, in the, you know, birth of American golf. He designed the initial holes at, at the country club. And then over the next number of years, the course was gradually expanded and lengthened to the point when it had 18 holes. It was a full championship course by the 1913 U.S. Open. And this is one of the most important U.S. Opens in golf history. Uh, Francis We Met beat Harry Varden and Ted Ray in a playoff. And, you know, it's uh, some consider it the greatest tournament ever played. There's been a fantastic book by Mark Frost about it. There's been a movie about it. I think people are aware of this tournament and its significance in American golf history. You know, beating these two players was a big, big deal. So that's, you know, that happened at the country club. Um, number of championships have been held at the country club over the years. It expanded to 27 holes in 1927. That was when William Flynn added the Primrose nine and William Flynn, you know, it really important American architect. You've done an episode about William Flynn. Uh, what are some of the other courses that he's designed? Uh, Shinnecock Hills. Shinnecock Hills, Cherry Hills, and in, in Denver, a ton of golf courses in the Philadelphia area, such as Lancaster, which will have the U.S. Women's Open in a couple of years, Huntington Valley, Rolling Green, Manufacturers, Catansett, um, mm, yeah. you know, a really a top flight architect of the golden age. For sure. Yeah. So William Flynn was here. And now I'm not sure. He designed the Primrose Nine, which was originally intended to be kind of for uh, kids and older people and for women golfers, that was how it was imagined, kind of the sporty nine. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if William Flynn had an influence on the rest of the course, whether he made updates to the rest of the course, but there does seem to be a kind of uh, stylistic cohesion that emerged at the country club over time. And I wonder if William Flynn had some influence on that or, you know, whether he was brought in to consult on the other holes. I'm not sure. There's a lot of aspects of the country club's history that I'm a little bit vague on. So I'll be looking forward to like learning more as the U S open approaches. Maybe there'll be some articles on it. It's a, it, it's an interesting thing. Cause obviously the, the name, the country club, it's yeah. synonymous. It the it's country really, club. really the first country club. And like many country clubs, it has a a long and uh, you know winding architectural path with this golf course. And yeah. and really, you know, we usually see these championships at your purebreds. You know, this is an Alistair McKenzie, or at at Southern Hills, this is a Perry Maxwell golf course at Tillinghast. This one is at a mutt, and it's a beautiful mutt. You know, it's that that great dog that, that you know, everybody always says, hey, wh what kind of dog is that? Because they're curious and they see it <laughs> and they're like, that's a beautiful dog. Um, and it's, you know, one of the th unique things about being a mutt is that it's got a lot of the uh, different aspects of the course to look at and a lot of different stylistic things. But altogether, it works. You know, it's got some some mounding and different things that would be more associated with very early architecture. Um, it's got, you know, Flynn features where it just uses the land and has these dramatic ridge to ridge holes that work really, really well. And then obviously with Gil coming in and adding some of his flavor to it, it, you know, it all fits in together, but 
it's not one of those courses where you just say, oh, what a great, you know, Flynn course. There's a lot in this golf course besides William Flynn. Yeah, it's an it's the product of a really complex, long evolution. And so crediting it to one architect is always going to to fail. And, you know, I think that's the that's a thing that you often see with courses that were built before the 1900s, because in the early 1900s, that's when the Haskell ball was introduced and courses had to change. So any courses that were built before the Haskell ball, they became something, usually something completely different after the Haskell ball. And then that sort of happened again in the 1920s. There was more length being added in the game. Players were getting longer and and clubs had more money. And so they, they got to go back to their courses and renovate. And so courses that were pre-Haskell ball not only had to go through the Haskell revolution, but also the 1920s when courses were making these additions and, and kind of participating in, in the boom of American golf and American golf architecture. So any courses that were built back then, you know, they're going to have these kinds of design histories where you can't credit the course or any, even any particular hole to a specific architect because they, they have grown so much over the years. And so that's what you have at the country club. Um, all right, just to kind of finish out some of its history, you know, you get into the eighties, Reese Jones comes in and he doesn't do the thing that we associate now with Reese Jones. He doesn't do kind of a Robert Trent Jones monsterfication, lengthening, narrowing of the course necessarily. He does in the eighties, what he calls then a restoration. And, you know, I've talked to a number of people about this kind of posing the question, Reese Jones calls this a restoration. What he did in preparation for the 1989 U.S. Open, was it a restoration? And the answer has generally been it had a lot of the characteristics of a restoration. You know, he took out some of the stuff that had been done earlier by, I believe, Jeffrey Cornish. Jeffrey Cornish kind of added some, you know, containment mounts to the course and and did some things that made it look not, you know, uh, properly antique. Reese Jones brought back some of the aesthetics, some of the grasses, some of just the look of the course, but he didn't remove trees. And so there were some things that remained to be done. He didn't, I don't think he really expanded greens either. Certainly didn't expand fairways. Fairway expansions still haven't really been done there. <laughs> when you look at the the green expansions that were done and you, you can see and you'll see this at the tournament. You'll see the overheads of, and you'll, if you pay attention, you can see the old grass lines and the new grass. It is unbelievable to look at how small the greens were before Gil did his green restoration yeah. and expansions. Just tiny. And they became part of the course's identity. I think that small greens at courses like the Country Club are the reason that a lot of people think that so called old school courses have small greens. Yeah. Then that's not really the case. You know, old school courses are mostly quite the opposite. If you're talking about old school golden age of golf architecture, the greens tended to be much bigger than what you saw at the country club or Pebble Beach. But it was because of courses like the country club having these tiny greens that people often think that that's what old fashioned golf looks like. Um, in any case, so Reese Jones did his thing, and it was a really important moment in golf architecture where suddenly a lot more people knew about the concept of restoration. And then, of course, there were architects after Reese Jones who consulted at various clubs like the Country Club 
and did restoration that was maybe a little more historically faithful than the work that Reese Jones did in 1989, but he deserves some credit for at least, you know, promoting that concept. Um, all right. And then finally, last step in, in the evolution of the country club, there've been a number of architects who have visited over the years that I haven't mentioned, but Gil Hans came in and started consulting in 2009. And so this is actually one of Hans's sort of not early jobs, but mid period jobs. This wasn't part of like the recent big wave of Gil Hans historical renovations. He started at this club not long after he did the restoration at Los Angeles country club North course. And so he has been working at the country club for a great deal of time, kind of doing the gradual work Mm -hmm. that we no longer really associate with him. We associate Hans with these big spectacular all at once projects like he did at Southern Hills or Oakland Hills. But here at the country club, he's been doing more piece by piece stuff. And I think that's part of the reason that, as we'll discuss later, there still is stuff that remains to be done that he probably still wants to do at at the country club. Yeah, totally. This is a this is a restoration or historical renovation, like the the way most clubs did it at that time period. I feel like there's been a huge movement lately, and this was led by clubs like uh, Wingfoot or Oakland Hills or Southern Hills that says we need to shut down or we need to do nine and nine. And the way a lot of clubs did that before that was just piecemeal. And you see that with a lot of the other great courses. And one of the benefits of that, I think, with with, um, the country club in particular is that it still has this rustic feel. And I think that's one of my favorite things about it is the aesthetics of it, is that it is an old place. It is a very important place. It's a very historic place, a founding five club of the USGA. And it looks old. I think it is a little silly when an old course comes out of a rest- restoration and looks brand new. Um, it, it, it just, you know, and you have the mono stand turf at the country club, you still have a wide array of grasses and it just looks lived in. It looks worn it, it beautifully lived in place. And I think that's one of the things that I love the most about the country club is just the aesthetics and how it fits the place that it is. Boston, you know, a, a course that came out brand spanking new of a huge restoration in, in, at the country club. Would, that wouldn't work with Boston, you know? Yeah, totally agree. It's a, That's always the tension with this work that people are doing. You know, you may do things that make the turf, quote unquote, better. But in the process, you may also lose some of the feel that makes the course special and that differentiates old courses from new courses. You know, a big part of what we love about old courses is that they feel like they are really part of the landscape. They've had time decades to settle in. And when you redo something all at once, sometimes you can lose a lot of that and you might gain a bunch of things on the other end of it. There might be some real benefits to doing things that way, but there are also some costs that aren't discussed very often. So uh, I think that's a big one with the country club. And it does look, it looks amazing. Like the aesthetics, the colors, the textures are so, so cool there. All right. So um, to get into some, uh, I want to set up this Gil Hance tape here, this conversation that we had with Gil about his work at the course and what he thinks about the course. But uh, before we get into that, I want to try to clarify for people as much as we can 
what the routing is that they're going to see at the U.S. Open, because it's not just the course that gets rated in magazines. The course that gets rated in magazines at the country club is the Clyde and Squirrel course, uh, which is the non-Primrose 9. It's the non-William Flynn country club course as it exists now, Clyde and Squirrel. At the U.S. Open, what we're going to see is the championship course or the composite course. I don't think they have a single name for it, but it consists of holes from all three nines. So it kind of ranges across the property. And the championship course that we're going to see in 2022 is different from the championship course that we saw in 1989. It has changed. And so, Andy, could you explain, having been there recently, basically what the composite routing there is for sure so it it is mostly the Clyde and squirrel golf course so the the golf course that's ranked it, it is mostly that but the fourth the eighth and the ninth holes are skipped and in it, their place is the ninth hole from the primrose the first and the eighth hole so the way it works is you play one, two, three, the way the normally is done. And then you skip to what is usually the fifth hole of the Clyde Squirrel routing. But the fourth hole runs right there. It's, it's an easy walk. It's a manageable. The way it kind of fits in, it easily gets there. Then you play the normal routing um, through that uh, all the way till the seventh hole. And that's where things kind of change. So from there, you kind of jump across. Uh, normally, you would go keep going around. The, you'd play the eighth and ninth holes, and then you'd go to the tenth hole, which uh, is a different. You know, it's a different tenth hole. Uh, but the way it works now is you go up the par five, which is usually the fourteenth hole. Yeah. That's where it switches, and that is the eighth hole for this uh this routing change and this is where the primrose then makes its first entrance and it's a downhill par four it's usually the ninth hole the last hole on the primrose nine so this is a downhill par four and then it picks back up into the normal routing of of the country club where you play the 10th hole and then you play the eleventh hole, the short par three, which is a new addition this year. Yeah, that and that was enabled by skipping what is normally the fourth hole. Yeah, which is it, a really famous hole. It is. <laughs> yeah, it's a cool hole. But also the, uh, you know, just to linger on three, four, and five, the the Clyde and Squirrel three, four, and five for a second, because the fifth hole on Clyde and Squirrel or the fourth hole for the championship routing has been lengthened so much because the T has been pushed back so much. <laughs> Essentially you're using all the length of what used to be the fourth of what is usually the fourth hole in the client squirrel. And you're adding that on to what is now the fourth hole on the championship course. And so the transition from championship three to championship four is, is really good. Like it's, you know, basically the T is right next to the green, but that exists because that that second hole of that duo has been lengthened so much. So and that's basically why it works now. That transition works really well if you're playing um, the back tee. Yeah. But if you're playing the member tee. Then you just walk past a hole. 
Yeah, it's yeah. it's like a two hundred yard walk. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. it's 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 a cl- it's a clunky one, but it's a really seamless one for the back team, which is the most important thing here for the championship routing. Um, so yeah, those holes occupy such great land. The other thing that it enabled by skipping four was is a par four where they can put hospitality tents. <laughs> yeah, on. exactly. Yeah. So you yeah, talk about championship infrastructure that that hole provides versus a short par three is substantially more. Yeah. So, okay. So you were into talking about championship 10, 11, and 12. 11 is the new hole, the drop shot par three. Cool hole. We can we can talk more about it later if you want. Actually, we talk about it with Gil. So that, that's that's coming up later. You do 10, 11, 12. So 10 is usually regular routing 11. And then the short par three is usually regular routing 12. Yeah. Um, so then you play uh, the 12th hole of the championship, which is regular 13, and you hop back into the primrose. There you go. So the primrose. And this is uh, where it gets really crazy, by the way. Yes. With the 13th so, hole. <laughs> so listen so to this. the 13th hole <laughs> is primrose one. But you play to the second green on the Primrose course. So the first, this is the crazy, one of the craziest holes I've ever seen in championship golf. I've never seen, you know, we we hear about using different tee boxes. I've never seen a hole that plays from one tee to another green. This is like a cross country golf hole that actually works quite well. So you tee off on one. It's kind of one is on Primrose, kind of a shortest. Dog hard dog like left par four, and it's followed by a short par three over water. There aren't any trees in the way, so you just play one tee to two green on primrose. So you're you're gonna see guys, and you might see them hidden in the trees, and they might chip out, and you might see people play wedge shots from what is the first green on the primrose <laughs> golf course. You so literally you- play right over. The the uh the green to the next to the next green. It is yeah, a it's wild. It's a crazy hole. Um, so it it's now four hundred and twenty seven yards. The hole otherwise would probably be around. I I don't have the Primrose scorecard in front of me, but it would be around three hundred and three hundred ish yards. Maybe yeah. a little bit longer. Um, and then you play Primrose eight which is a dramatic par five that plays up. And we'll talk a little bit more about the par fives, but it occupies the same land as the other par five, which if you remember was the 14th hole. So those greens are really close by, which connects you right to the 15th tee of the Clyde and Squirrel uh, 18 routing. And that brings you right into the clubhouse. So you play 15 through 18, just as you would on a normal day at the country club playing the Clyde and squirrel, but you just connect through this other par five. That's green is side by side of the, uh, usual 14th. So the new, the 14th and the championship is a par five, just like the 14th and the Clyde and squirrel nine, but it's the eighth on the primrose, not the uh, normal 14th. Yeah. And so the two par fives, it's just two par fives in the championship routing, right? This is yes. we're dealing with a, a par 70 course here. So, mm-hmm. um, and one, one thing about the early start, one other quirk is that the second hole is a converted short par four into a par three. Yeah. And it looks like it because there's like a little dog leg on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a dog leg par three now. <laughs> 
So, well, it's not really. It's a straight shot. It's an easy straight shot. I mean, you can take a straight shot, but the way the way the hole is shaped, it looks yes. a little bit like yeah, like it has the bones of you know a short dog leg uh, par four. But it's yeah, I mean, and there's like a back tee there that's not going to be used for the championship. There'll Obviously, be stands on that. Yeah. Right. Or an entrance. Yeah. It's right by the entrance drive. It's uh so it's it's a logistical, you know, kind of effort to put this championship course together. And I believe they've almost had a different championship course every time they've had a tournament. Have they? Yeah, it wouldn't yeah. be surprising. I mean, you know, they've had a ton of US amateurs here and other you know, uh other USGA events, but this is only the fourth US Open. You know, this was uh, that, that has been held at the country club. It was held here in 1913, obviously, but then it was 1963 until they held it again. And then it was 1989 and now it's 2022. So there actually haven't been a lot of U.S. Opens here compared to some other, you know, uh, Rota kind of U.S. Open Rota courses. But anyway, I hope people followed that and got something out of that. Basically, uh, the championship routing on the course consists of holes from all three nines, and it's in the middle of the course that it really jumps over to the primrose and uses some of the holes there. And at one point, you will see players hitting approaches over one green to another green on the other side of some water. And that will be uh, even crazier to people than the sight of players hitting a tee shot over a green at Southern Hills at the PGA Championship. So uh, we're seeing a lot of crazy stuff to get uh, the proper length of championship courses these days. I will say explaining it is really confusing, but when you're out there, it, it everything works together really well. Like the yeah. championship course connects really well. There aren't any crazy green to tee walks. Like it, you're just, it, it, it really flows together well. And it really, you know, what works about it is the proximity of those holes where you're flipping back and forth. Those green to tees are right next to each other. So it, it's a really easy change in the routing. Yeah. And and there's some really nice gathering points too, you know, where you see champ seven green, champ 10 T, champ eight T, champ 12 green, champ 13 T. You know, a lot of that's around the same point in the middle of the property where they're going to have the practice range, by the way, the driving range is going to consist of uh, holes on the course. Yeah. That range is on eight and nine yes, of, of, of Clyde and Squirrel. Clyde and Squirrel. Yeah. So that same gathering point would be eight T and nine green. Which mm-hmm. those holes are really cool holes. I uh, totally really neat holes, but they're just kind of shortish par fours. So it it and to make the course a little bit burlier, um, they use those. They interchange those other other holes in. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that is the championship routing of the Country Club. Let's throw it to the conversation with Gil. We sat down with him uh, a couple of months ago and just talked about everything to do with the Country Club, his thoughts about the course and some of the things that he and Jim Wagner did in their renovation of it. Um, And so let's go to that. Moving on to the country club, uh, I had a, a player that's in the field tell me the country club, along with Shinnecock, were the two hardest courses he had ever played. What about it is so challenging? Uh, you know, we're, it's a theme we're running on here with the greens, but it's the small, tilty greens. I mean, they're, and they're tiny. Um, you know, probably I know they're bigger than than Pebble Beach, but 
they're probably the second smallest set of greens I would think on and for major championships aside from Pebble. So I think you know you've got to you've got to play good golf shots in there. I think um, you know obviously U.S. Open rough will be will be a big factor in that. And I think the other thing you know, we saw it at, at Wingfoot. You know, Bryson had a plan to go in, and and he was just, you know, he executed it, and it worked. I'm not sure that something like that works at the country club because you've got a lot of fescue and blue stage. So you've got native, like, you know, at, at winged foot, if you miss it in the rough, you're pretty much in the rough, right? It's all bluegrass or, or thing. But there's a lot more unpredictability at the country club where if you really start pulling it far left or far, far right, you're, you're going to be in stuff this tall as opposed to, you know, six inches tall. So I think that's going to be part of the character and part of the test as well is that there's a lot more native ground to it. Um, the contour, the roll, the sort of up and down, um, will you're not going to get a lot of level lies out there. So I think, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a full test. And now that it's been lengthened, I think it's probably got the, you know, the length to challenge those guys as well. Do you think the small greens kind of would help prevent the, the, the kind of, hit it as far and worry about your lie later. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, wing foot screens were pretty big, and, and a lot of them slope front to back. Yeah, I think wing foot, and you know, credit to Bryson, he, he it was uniquely designed to be receptive, right? You know, you got everything's tilting severely, so it's going to take the steam out of a shot coming out of the rough. And as long as you got it on the green itself, it was probably going to hold up. Now, putting, and he putted great that week, so it was one of those things where I think that that thought process was applicable to Wingfoot, but I don't think it's going to be applicable because of what you said. Those greens are tiny, and there's and a lot of the the fronts are angled off, so it'll be harder to get into them. How does uh, the Country Club make an impression early in the round? Um, well, I think you've got the really probably some of the most interesting to part. I mean, obviously not one, you know, one's just a, a the old racetrack. Um, so I think it's just, it's a longer hole, um, playing into that. It's probably a good, just getaway hole. And two being converted to a par three, I think is a tough hole playing up that hill a little over 200 yards. So, you know, par threes are always difficult. You know, us amateurs always think of them as being the easiest, but when you look at scoring average, they're always the most difficult for, because, we can all envision ourselves hitting one shot, whereas those guys, you know, it's they'd rather play a par five where they can miss something and and and, and score that way. So I think you know, starting up with a par three second, and then three has got some of the best topography on the property. I mean, that's one of my favorite holes in the world, let alone there. And it's got the whole package, you know, the, the way it rolls, the way if you get yourself, you take the most aggressive line, you've got visibility. If you don't take a good line, you you know you have your visions obscured. And then uh, Champ Four is just hard. I mean, that's just a long, long golf hole. So I think you know those first four holes, you're you know, you're hoping to come out of there even par. But the chances are it's, it's and then you know, you get to Champ Five, which is obviously a short four. So you've got a chance there to to start scoring a little bit. So it's a, it's a as as Ross would, it's a firm handshake in welcoming you to to the Country Club. Those holes also kind of introduce you to the really unique uh, aesthetic of mm-hmm. the country club. Could you, could you talk a little bit about the, the way the country club just looks and how unique its, its uh, environment is? Yeah, I think you know, it's the, the rock outcroppings are spectacular. You know, the removal of the trees that's occurred over the last 
you know, 12, 14 years, I think has again restored the the scale and the drama and the beauty of that property. I mean, it's a rugged piece of ground and it's a rugged golf course, which is great. And I think that's emblematic of, you know, the origins of American golf architecture. You, in New England, you, it's hard to find just perfect ground. So you kind of tacked and went to and fro and up and over, you know, hill and dale. And that's pretty much the way the country club is laid out. You're just, it's, you're on a trek through an amazing piece of ground that's, uh, not always conducive to golf, but they figured out a great way to get through it. And I think, you know, the beauty of the rock outcroppings and the fescue areas is really something you and looking across that landscape at that, at that clubhouse, the yellow clubhouse, it really is. It's a, it's a truly special place in American golf. I'm so I'm, I'm sure we're all delighted that it's, that it's back there again. Over the years, the identity of the country club you know, really became the small greens mm -hmm. and the the tar the small targets, but you guys did some expansions. Um, yeah. Talk about the dimension that some of the expansions added uh, to the greens. I think it allows um, the whole locations. Well, we found a few more which they desperately needed on a couple of the greens, um, but I think it it allows you know back to that setup talk that we were talking about at Southern Hills it you know it it allows John Bodenhammer and Jeff Hall and those guys a chance to have more options as opposed to knowing okay this is a very small zone that we can we can put you know like the fifth green which just is an amazing amount of tilt similar to the fifth green at Marion um, you know there's really only a few hole locations there and so it's one of those things where if we can just grab a little bit more space then it gives them a little bit more flexibility in where they're where they're putting it, um, and then I think it also brings some of the the adjacent hazards more into play. You can start of tuck, like some of the whole locations that are created on six and sixteen. Well, regular routing six, so champ five, and I'm horrible about that. Yeah. I keep getting them all mixed up. <laughs> um, you know, gives you an opportunity to. There's some little crowns that they, they couldn't have pinned before because they were too close to the edge. And now we can and also created a whole location on 16 just beyond the bunker and same thing on 17. So I think it's going to give them a little bit more flexibility in where they can put the whole locations based on the conditions and the firmness. And I think that that's been, been welcome. They're still tiny. I mean, even, you know, we're talking about maybe expanding a green that was 4,000 square feet to 4,800. It's not like we made it 7,000. Were some of those greens, were, was the decision made not to expand some of them? Yep. It was on a few of them just because we really, there was, we felt like they were historically pretty close. And while we're not, Jim and I aren't averse to restoring greens where slopes are not going to yield a whole location, sometimes we felt like that the, the challenge that was presented was probably more appropriate to leave it as rough or leave it as it is. Um, so there are, yeah, there are, I would say probably six or seven greens that we didn't expand. Like Champ 12, was it just too severe, like in the front part there? Yes. Uh-huh. That's like, yep. I, I walked around kind of wondering. Um, with, uh, with the short par three, this will be the first time they have that short par three part of the, part of the championship. What, what do you think that brings to kind of the flow of the round? Well, I think it, it, it literally adds to the flow of the round in that you're not walking past that hole. That was always one of those sort of strange, <laughs> like, okay, um, you know, you, you finish here and then you walk, you know, 300 yards by the time you get to the next tee. So I think it, it plugs that gap quite nicely. And I think it just fits in, you know, really well with the overall flow of the entire golf course to have that par three set in there as opposed to, 
you know, I'm trying to think you had a part three on, on at, in the original, cha- you know, routing, you had it on two and then seven, and then you didn't see another part three till 16. It's a long gap, you know, between, between holes. So I think that was something where, where it really works out quite nicely to have that fit into the overall flow of the round. What, the architectural history of the country club is very, very complex. And there, <laughs> so when you're doing a restoration there, what, what architectural history did you attempt to restore? We looked at, at photos from every era. And we tried to figure out how, how to best handle it. And ultimately it came down to just sort of picking and choosing different eras. There was no, and, and we never do, you know, Jim and I are never big fans of picking that sort of golden date. Like, okay, we're, we're going back to that moment in time because then that denies that any evolution that ever occurred on the golf course was good. And so we just feel like, listen, let's, let's try and use to the best of our ability our knowledge and and what the club is trying to accomplish based from a member standpoint first and foremost but then also from a championship standpoint and what what ultimately makes sense and so we found some good examples of like bunker style you know the, the originally they would they weren't the way they are now that had that was an evolution over a period of time and i think some of those tied into when William Flynn came in to do primrose and then they got a little bit more sand flash on the faces. And so then the, the gnarly sort of rugged edge was more of a, you know, sixties. I can't remember what year they opened was there in the sixties, but it was more of looking at that, that photograph. And so I think it was just trying to figure all that evolution back and, and just try and pick the highlights for each individual golf hole. So part of the architectural history at the country club is the Reese Jones, restoration is what it was called Mm -hmm. in in the late 1980s and it was one of the first examples of a really high profile project that was called a restoration Mm -hmm. and so obviously the country club had been the subject of a supposed restoration before you arrived and so when you arrived what remained to be restored or what were you looking at for bringing more of the historical character of the course back into play yeah, I think, you know, and all credit, he should get all credit for that because he really started talking about it. it was great. I mean, it was nice that people started talking about old architecture and going back and, and restoring these types of features and, and character to a golf course. I think it was really an important moment for, for golf architecture, honestly. And I think, you know, he had had a longer term relationship there than Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw came in after the Ryder Cup and did some, and did some minor tweaks there. And then eventually they handed off to us. And, and really what we were focused on was a lot of more tree removal, more of a restoration of the landscape, um, because that had just been evolution over a period of time. That wasn't like a conscious architectural decision to, to really put a lot of trees onto it. They just grew. You know, it was that benign neglect, um, which, you know, nobody was setting out to make an, a statement or, or a negative change. It just happened. And so I think we were trying to move some of that stuff back. Uh, repeal some of that growth and then also, you know, preparing for the U.S. Amateur in 2013. It's like, okay, what needs to happen now? Cause the last championship they had there was the Ryder Cup in 99. It's like, okay, in those 14 years, the game's changed dramatically. So what do we need to do to make the golf course a, a, a challenge for the best amateurs in the world in that case? And so I think it was trying to find back tees. It was trying to move bunkers downrange. It was ultimately trying to, address grassing lines, you know, either through widening. And then there was some infrastructural stuff, improving drainage. So it wasn't as if we were brought in to make wholesale architectural changes. It was really, okay, how do we 
burnish this beautiful golf course and try and you know get it to a point where it's, it's presented better, but ultimately also provides a, a modern test for, for the best golfers in the world. Outside of that opening stretch, what are some of the holes that you're most excited to, to see the pros play? Um, I got to get the, the, the routing right. Um, it's the long par five in the back. It should be 14, right? It would be 14, yeah, because now it's hooking in and then you're going behind yeah. what was 14 I, into I 15. Do <laughs> I do this all the time because <laughs> we've had four different iterations. There's actually a member who came up with the one that we're using for the, for the U.S. Open. Oh. So it was, yeah, it was our main contribution was, listen, let's, let's try and get rid of four, what had been champ four, regular four, because you were basically playing that short par four and then almost walking the entirety of it back to play the tee, the back tee for what it was champ five. And so that was, then we put in the short par three to take the place of, of that hole. And then ultimately, you know, how do we figure out the rest? And then, so that, that long par five, which is 15, I'm excited to see because I think it's one of those, 14. sorry, 14, 14, it will be a, um, if you don't hit it in the fairway, off the tee, you're not getting up top. And then watching those guys have to sort of lay back to a really a long yardage and then have to play completely blind up the hill into that green, I think could be a really interesting challenge. So I think the tee shot there is really gonna require, I mean, you gotta hit it in the fairway. I mean, and that, that where you lay up to, if you miss the fairway, you're, there's no way you can see anything. You're looking no. at a rock cliff. Yes. And then roughly it's about 200, yeah, I think it'd be, a, yeah, it's a long shot up there. And you've got, I mean, those guys can hit those, that shot high. But I mean, if you're an amateur, you, you're trying to hit up a rock face from that distance. Yeah, it, I think that'll be an interesting hole just because the tee shot. I, I don't know that people, a lot of people are talking about how difficult that tee shot is going to be. And the green is not easy if you're on the wrong, in the wrong spot if you miss that third shot. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, just sitting in that kind of canoe, that bowl, if you get yourself out of position, it's going to be a hard one to play into. So I think that's that's an interesting hole. Um, you know, the little par three I think is going to be fun to see how they do because there's some really diabolical hole locations on that. You know, that with the expansion, just trying to get it back closer to the edge, and the penalty for a miss is pretty severe. I mean, those bunkers are not easy, and if you start, you know, you miss it long right or long, you're you're in a wetland area, so you're looking at dropping in a hazard or maybe finding your golf ball and being able to chop something out of there. So it's. I get it. It's a short club. It's downhill. But I think even that is going to exacerbate the challenge more because you're so far downhill. It's almost, I'm not even sure it's a full club for those guys. So I think that'll be a fun one to watch. And, and 17 is a hole that people will probably see a lot on the on the telecast. I think it's a pretty interesting hole. A little bit of history happened there. A little, little bit yeah, of history a few, on a that A few green. things happened there. And, and in that fairway. Yeah. Uh, yeah the yeah. Varden bunker. So what are, what are some of the architectural features of that hole? I mean, I think people probably can call it to mind because so many famous moments have happened there. But what about the design of that hole might be, might be interesting. Yeah. That'll be a hole that'll be interesting to watch, but almost not in a positive way. That's probably the hole that I'm most worried about. Not, and I'm not, it's not me that, you know, I think architecturally, I don't know how they're going to play that. I mean, they could, in theory, they get the right conditions. They could just pound it and almost drive the green. Because it's you know it's, it measures whatever 380 390, but that's on the dog leg. If you go directly towards it, I mean they could in theory go. So we've added some 
uh, little chocolate drops down the left-hand side in the rough. I think that rough over there is going to be extremely penal. Um, I think the USGA has made a decision to try to, to do that. But then, all right, if you don't take that angle, do you just hit an iron and lay up short and then still have a very short iron into the green? So I, I have a feeling it's going to be one where I'm not sure if they're all just going to hit iron off the tee and just take all the trouble out of play and then just trust that they can hit a short iron in there, which would then in theory not be all that interesting to watch. Or are they going to all try and pound it down there? Or are you going to get a mixture of both? I mean, the best result would be right if guys are willing to take a chance. It's, it's a whole, I'm just, I'm just not sure what's going to happen there. It's really an interesting one. The other ones you can to a certain degree predict or at least have some solid thoughts about what they're going to do. But that one, and the, and the the way the hole sort of sits and then turns on that ridge, you know, picking a point to carry over the bunkers, uh, is, you know, on the through line, you're almost when you carry it, you're almost worried about it just going through the fairway on the on the far side. So you've got to turn it. Then that brings. The, I mean, there's a lot going on there, and it'll be interesting to see what they do. But I'm hopeful it just doesn't turn into okay. I'm going to hit an iron, you know, and or hybrid into the middle of the fairway and just take my chances in a way it could be a hole that distance has actually made more compelling it is yeah i'm hopeful it it has i'm hopeful it's not a hole that distance has made just boring Mm -hmm. um the chocolate drops you brought up um i'd i'd love you know i think that's a common theme through the course and what is appealing about chocolate drops uh, or hummocks whatever you want to call them as a as a hazard the unpredictability. I mean, it's just where are you going to be? Are you going to be on the top of it, on the side of it? You're going to be in one of those little hollows. You're going to be standing on one of those, you know, with the ball below your feet. Is it going to be above your feet? I think it's just the randomness and the unpredictability because God knows they're, they're the most artificial looking thing ever. So in theory, we don't really, you know, we're trying to build natural looking things and they just conflict with us aesthetically, or at least you, you would think they would, but in the proper context, like there, Catancet has them. I mean, in New England, I, I think they're kind of cool, the way that they're, they've been treated and the way the grass grows. In, in a way, they kind of mesh in with the rocks, right? Because yeah, that's generally what they are. It's just a <laughs> pile of rocks, and they didn't want to move them too far away, so they just dumped them underneath there, and they became you know, a practical solution to a problem of building a golf course, and which has then turned into really a kind of a cool architectural uh, feature. Brian Schneider told me a great one of the courses he works at um, North Jersey, which is a Travis. Okay. Um, the members wanted to play the course really right when it you know it was not ready to play, and they said, "Okay, you can play, but you have to pick rocks up uh, in the fairways as you play." And they have all these huge hummocks and rock piles. They're just <laughs> rock piles that the members just dropped, like, you know, weeks after the course had been sure. seated. Oh, that's you great. Know, so they can play golf. <laughs> and, and so they have them, they're just completely random where they are, that's but that's great. where they sit now. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm curious about the execution of a feature like that, because I feel like it's almost a bit of a trend at this point, the, the, the hummocks on, on some of these older courses, and it carries a bit of a whiff of, like, pre-Golden Age architecture you know, like Victorian style mm-hmm. chocolate drops. And they can be really cool, but I have a hard time describing to people why these are different than containment mounds. Uh, you know, un- unnatural looking, you know, regular kind of 
humps and hollows that you know we've all seen going down both sides of golf holes and, and they don't look good. No. How do you make how do you make these little fields of hummocks look good? How do you execute those so that they don't look ridiculous or just you know blatantly artificial and, and unpleasing? So what we we kind of say um, is just make a ma- make a mess and then track it in and see where you go. And it's not easy to do. You're constantly up and down and over, and it it does. And then the excavator guys just kind of tap them in and bang them down. So it's really just as you almost want to operate the bulldozer and the machinery with your eyes closed <laughs> is, is the way you want to try to do it. So you have no idea what you're actually building. And that's the only way we found that you can replicate that stuff. It's like the McKenzie line, like, how do you build an interesting green, hire the biggest fool in town and tell him to make it flat? <laughs> this episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Club Champion. Club Champion helps golfers of any skill level play better golf through custom-fitted and custom-built equipment. Their extensively trained master fitters provide an in-depth, data-driven, tour-level fitting process and have access to 50,000 hittable head and shaft combos, as well as 60-plus brands. They also use industry-leading technology like TrackMan and Sam Putlab, and they build to the tightest tolerances in the industry. Club Champions fittings produce real results for every level of player, including an average of 22-yard increases off the tee and an average of 10-yard improvements in dispersion. On a personal note, I've gone through Club Champion fittings myself, and aside from getting clubs that actually work for me, the main thing I appreciated about the process was how much I learned about my game and the kind of equipment I should be using. It was genuinely eye-opening. So Friday listeners, here's the deal Club Champion is offering. Between now and the end of this year, you can use code FRIEDEGG to get 20% off the cost of your Club Champion fitting with the purchase of a club. That's code FRIEDEGG, all one word. All right, back to the episode. All right, so we heard Gil talk a little about the great aesthetics of the country club, um, which come from the unique piece of land that it sits on. And maybe we could expand on that a little bit, Andy. Like, what what do you think makes this course look so special? Because it really, it looks different than any course. That That's the thing that jumps out to me about the country club. There are a lot of things about the country club that, you know, maybe aren't the top of the top. Uh, you know, not, not every hole is the greatest, but something that is unique about the place is the way it looks, but I'm not really sure how to explain that. So how would you explain that? Yeah, I think it just embodies New England, right? And yeah. when you think about New England at its core as like kind of the place where America was uh, inhabited and where early America started, really, you know, was New England. And one of the things that I feel like when you're there is that you're going on this adventure um, and the routing really s- works well for that because you start down in this flat and then right after the first hole, which you know was part of the racetrack and really flat, two, you work your way up into the highlands. And you know there is where you see the really cool stuff. It's where you have these rock outcroppings and you have these gorgeous trees. And then you have these mounds. And the mounds are kind of wonky, as, as Gil talked about it. They have like this little bit of you know unnatural feel, but they work really well with the rocks. 
um, because you see these other rocks and they're probably just rock piles. Um, but these mounds and, and what you're doing is you're tackling this really big landscape and you're trying to hit it over rocks. You're hitting it around rocks. You're hitting it through rocks at, at, at certain points. So with the third hole, you know, you're trying to thread the needle between those two huge rock outcroppings. And really what it is, is you're in this kind of almost highlands and you're discovering every time you're, you're walking over a hill, you're seeing something new. And it's a really thrilling place to play golf because of the way it navigates its nature. It's, its place is that you are constantly, you know, you're excited to turn the corner and move to the next hole to see what you have to tackle next. And really, when you look at the aesthetics, so we talked about this at the beginning, but, you know, having it look old, feel old, the grasses, you know, just present such a unique look that is quintessentially theirs because it it's old, right? This is what the nature and the landscape wants it to be. So with that, it, it just is a really visually um, appealing place. Um, once you start down from 15 off of 15T is when you return back down into the flat area that was formerly the racetrack. So after 15th tee, that's kind of the end of your, your journey through these highlands and you return back to the flat land that has 15, 16, 17, 18. So one... And one 15, as well, right? Yeah, yeah. One 15, 16, 17, 18 are in one part of the land, which is this flat old racetrack. Um, and then when you go up uh, after two tee shot, that's where you go into this really dramatic, um, rocky... Uh, kind of forest mm -hmm. to say yeah so you, you kind of start on what i'm hearing is that you start on this racetrack area fairly flat you know not as exciting as the rest of the land but the the kind of purpose of the course is to get you out to this really interesting stuff below where you're there's all these rocks and these crazy undulations and some uh water stuff as well and then it returns you from that and so you're kind of setting out on an event on an adventure and coming back like a, like a lot of uh, cool courses do that we've talked about yeah exactly in 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 that you're seeing you know kind of the recipes of what we like to see with what test players you're you have a lot of different lies uneven lies and the greens um, they're different than Southern Hills. They're different than Augusta. They aren't like small uh, targets. They're small greens with, <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> it's with, not like small targets within a larger green is what you're saying. It's not like the undulations make these little little shelves and stuff where you put pins. It's more that they're just really freaking small, intimidating looking well, greens. Some of them have been restored and they're bigger yeah. and they have some of those small sections. But for the most part, a lot of these greens are just small with a severe slope. So it becomes you're hitting from an uneven lie and you need to get to the spot where you have a somewhat flat putt. You're going to see a lot of putts with considerable break on them because of how the greens just kind of a lot of them sit on the land and slope in a general direction. Mm hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this is sort of similar to Pebble Beach in, yes. in a lot of ways where, yeah, the, the main interesting thing about the greens, if there's anything interesting about the greens, it's that they tilt in a certain direction and they tend to tilt in a direction that's not advantageous if you have played it safe on the drive. And that's and the kind of source of the strategy. Pebble Beach with 500 extra yards. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, all right. So you've talked a little bit about what makes the course challenging. 
is it primarily the topography with the small greens? What else is going to be hard out there? And you can talk about stuff that the USGA is doing on the setup as well. Yeah. So it's going to be narrow. It's going to be super narrow. Yeah. Uh, if the fairways are ribboned and the rough's going to be really thick. I was out there in, what was that, the beginning of May? Maybe late April, beginning of May. Um, and the rough was already pretty healthy and it's only going to get more healthy. I think they, they d- did double fertilizer this year is what one of the caddies told me. And, <laughs> so ridiculous. Come on. Uh, and it's going to be, it's going to be a hack out fest if you hit it in the rough. So it's going to be really, uh, you know, what the USGA likes, uh, execution based who could execute the best. Now, you know, it's going to be one of those golf, you're going to see guys struggle because of the lies that they get and they're, they're going to be forced to you know play very defensive and hit it into a spot maybe short of the green maybe you know to 40 yards and chip up and make pars it is a golf course that's going to prohibit scoring more than it's going to enable um birdies and and bogeys if that Mm -hmm. makes sense right instead of spreading out the range of possible outcomes it's it's going to kind of concentrate the range of outcomes around some higher scores some pars and bogeys as opposed to having that spread from from the birdie to the disaster. Um, all right, so... It's going to this... be different. It's going to be different, though, than Wingfoot because of the topography. So, uh-huh, yeah, Wingfoot like, relatively that, flat. and I think yeah. people are immediately going to say, oh, this is Wingfoot. Um, but because of the topography and the greens being up on ridges, you're gonna, not going to be able to bounce it up as much. And the greens being... The other thing about it is the greens being so small. Yeah, Wingfoot's greens are are restored. Those are larger greens with small sections. Here, a lot of players are going to be missing greens, right? Yeah. So if you're coming from the rough, you lose that spin. And if you don't have, a, you know, if you don't have an open front, they have a lot of open fronts out there. But then the greens are so small, you don't have the runway necessarily to stop it. Do you think this means that there's going to be more of a genuine premium on accuracy than there was at winged foot? Because what happened at winged foot is you have these big open fronts to the greens. And so essentially what Bryson did is he hit it as far up the corridor as he could, hoping that he wasn't behind a tree, but okay with being in the rough. And then he'd have a wedge out of the rough and be able to kind of run it on to this open front of the green and basically get it where he wanted it to go. What you're kind of saying is that 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 openness to the greens isn't as much there. And so does that mean that hitting fairways is going to be more important? I mean, hitting fairways is important. Right. That's going to be huge, but I don't think it's going to trump distance. I think hitting it far is still going to be the most important thing. It's just going to be the guy that honestly gets good lies. And, you know, yeah. whether it, that's kind of the, the corner, I feel like that the, the USGA has put themselves in with the setup, uh, with where they're, you know, the way they've been thinking about things is it becomes somewhat a, um, a championship of chance. I think nothing embodies these changes more than um, the first, the Primrose one, which is the 13th hole. The USGA brought the fairway in about six yards on the right, maybe six to 10 yards on the right side, which doesn't seem like a lot. But when you play the hole, it's a, it's kind of a snap dog like left. This is the hole that plays over the the green to the other green. Mm -hmm. It snaps hard uh, to the left. And all the green reverse cambers from left to right. So the, all, all the, the fairway, all the fairway, the yeah. fairway is running hard from left to right. So it's running so, into the rough that they added. They added the rough on the side where, 
the balls naturally go to. Yeah. So, you, you know, this is a shortish, it's 427. You know, you want to turn the ball over right to left here. You have to. Um, it's a, a hole that you probably would have seen a lot of guys hit three wood or iron on with a little bit more space. But at the, you know, 20 yards wide or whatever the fairway is there, and it narrowed in, your ball's almost always going to run into that rough. So at that point, why would you ever lay up if you're not going to hit the fairway? And and what it's going to lead to, I'm guessing, this is just my, my guess, is, is you're going to hit, see guys hitting driver over the trees, and they're hoping to end in the right rough, which is going to leave them a short wedge shot out of rough over water into the green. And this is kind of like the cause and effect of, I think of, of how they think of setting up golf courses. Okay. We're going to narrow. We want this to play harder. This hole is 427. It's not that hard. Let's make it harder. And they're going to put the rough, they bring the rough in to make it harder. But they are thinking about like the second effect of that is that when you bring the rough in, it's going to remove any thought of hitting anything but driver off the tee. Everybody's going to hit driver over the trees into the right rough, which is by the next tee box. So there's no trees there. They're going to hit driver up there and just wedge, hack the wedge out of the rough onto the green. And, and that's kind of like the way these things act out. And what happens is it removes all of the variants. You aren't going to see many other strategies play out here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because they could say, well, I could hit hybrid or three wood here, but I'm still going to be in the rough there because they've brought that side of the fairway and in. Do you want, so do you I want 100 well. yards in? Do you yeah. want 100 yards in from the rough or do you want 150 yards in out of the rough with trees in front of you? Classic example of how this kind of setup affects the thinking of a modern you know, championship field. I think that's a perfect example of that. And and that's just what it does. And th- this is the direction that the U.S. Open has moved R- recently. I mean, you think of it as the traditional U.S. Open setup, but there has been a move back to this because for a few years, there was some experimentation with places like Chambers Bay and Aaron Hills and Shinnecock Hills, where we're thinking of wider fairways and greens that are just really, really firm and protect par basically on their own. But we've moved away from that because there were so many complaints about it from players. Players hated it, and there's been a a changeover in the leadership of the setup crew, and we have gone back to more of this traditional U.S. Open setup. And you know what? Fine. You know, do that. This is the U.S. Open. It's, It's one tournament per year. Uh, moving this direction is okay, but I think we know what to expect from this kind of setup at this point, this heavy rough bring in the fairways setup. And I think that ultimately it kind of flattens the differences between different courses. Uh, so yeah. that you're not getting a course that plays like the country club. You're getting a course that plays like this, you know, us open idea. I think that's the thing is like, this is more of a setup of this is, we want this to be a U.S. Open setup. And part of that is we don't allow the golf course to be what it is. We're going to bring the fairways in. We're going to grow the rough up substantially to ridiculous levels. And, you know, this is what U.S. Open golf is. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard that, you know, Los Angeles Country Club's already narrowing fairways for next year. So yeah, that is already happening. That's That's one of the greatest restorations that's happened in this boom of restorations arguably you know along with pinehurst the most important restoration 
that occurred in this restoration boom. Um, and, you know, widely acclaimed restoration. And the, the way of the U.S. Open is we set up golf courses this way. So it's not, it, you know, everybody could say this is the greatest, you know, set up in the world the way they have it. That doesn't matter. The, this is how a U.S. Open is supposed to be, and this is how we're going to set it up. Yeah. And, and you know, there are people who are going to try to convince you that there is a kind of Gil Hance style of championship course. And there sort of is. Like, there, there are some principles that he often brings to his restoration projects. But ultimately, the real determining factor in these tournaments is set up. And so you'll see a big influence of the USGA setup crew at the country club, even over what Gil Hance did at the course. And and I think that we also saw that to a degree at Southern Hills, though, um, you know, the PGA of America set up, although they seem to be moving somewhat in the direction of the USGA style, they allowed that course to be more or less itself, which was great. But um, I think people just need to keep in mind that the setup for these championships is so, so influential, uh, even perhaps beyond what the architecture has done to restore features of the course or, or whatever. Um, why don't we talk about so we, you know, that's good for some of the the critiques that that we'll have of the the USGA setup. I think there might be some critiques of the course itself, even. But why don't we talk about some of the things that it does really well? Some of its best moments. We're gonna talk about the par fives, but is there like one other hole that you think people should look out for as like this is a great hole? Looking forward to seeing how the players approach this one. Gil talked about the third, so I'm gonna pick the six. Um, it is a par three. It sits right on top of the ridge that kind of overlooks this gorgeous uh, space that the third and the fourth and the fifth holes occupy. Um, the sixth hole is this great par three. So you play from ridge to ridge. In between, there's a small kind of gully that you walk down and up. Um, with that, the green sits right on that. So it's got a vicious false front. What makes this hole really is the green. It's a long par three. Um, and it's got this vicious small front, uh, false front. It, what I love about it, it, is, it has really difficult pin positions and a really gettable pin position. So the back right pin is tough. It's super narrow there. And the front pin is really hard because you have to be so precise with your approach shot. You have to land it effectively on the hood of a car because the green right after that false front and that front plateau kind of goes down into a gully. And it will remind a lot of people of a Baritz. It's not a Baritz, but it's got this little kind of gully gathering spot. And that is a really fun pin. So you're going to see a hole that on a day could play the easiest if they want with that pin in the middle and the tees up a little. You can make this hole the easiest hole at the country club. And then it can be transversely the hardest hole at the country club if they move that pin up to the front of the green and the tee way back because you're just going to have to hit a perfect golf shot. Otherwise, you're going to end up down or past it um, and really makes birdie a premium. Now, in that back section, what's really cool about it too is there's these chocolate drops around the green. Um, and it's just this like little feature. It's super narrow. You got to be really precise. And if you just miss a little bit, you end up with these really dicey, awkward chip shots, which will be really fun and a theme of the entire course. Yeah, it'll be fun to see players uh, hit their short, you know, kind of 
dig into their bag of short game shots here, even though a lot of them are out of rough. So it's going to be different than what we saw at Southern Hills. There's still going to be some real challenges with slope and lie and and things like that. I, I think Patrick Reed is probably going to do really well out of stuff like that. He might not be long enough to to do great in this tournament, but, you know, a player like him knows how to deal with those kind of heavy, rough lies with some. He tilt, might know how to you know. deal with more than the rough, you know. Heavy what are you talking could, about? You know, heavy rough can help oh. with, uh, you know. <laughs> you said earlier that the players who happen to get the good lies yeah. are going to do well. Well, you know, Patrick Reed tends to make his own luck in, in that regard. So uh, look out <laughs> look out for P. Reed. P. Reed. Um, okay. Uh, in any case, um, par fives. You mentioned them earlier. They're on the championship course. They are eight and 14 long par fives. Um, pretty long, at least. At least one of them is really long. They play of, very, very long. One of them is they're going uphill, right? So, yes. okay, what what makes these what makes these worth watching? They occupy probably the most dramatic land on the property. Um, you, you could probably make an argument that three and four and five do also, but in the same vein, you're effectively in the this bowl and you're going up to the top part of it, um, to the high point of the golf course, really. And so you're climbing uphill. So it automatically, I think the two things about these holes is that birdies are not given. They are they are not a foregone. You're not going walking up to either of these tees expecting a birdie. You know that when you get onto one of these par fives, that you have to hit really good shots to get birdies. Now the eighth hole is going to be the hole that's a little bit more scorable. This is a chance that you could make an eagle here. You can. That's a feasible thing you can do here. Uh, but. You know, what this hole, what I think is really neat about this hole is the false front. It's got this tremendous false front that really goes up almost about halfway into the green. So there aren't many pins. It's a very severe green, but it's got this severe false front. So it's going to be fun to watch approach shots in, say somebody's going for in two. And it's got that moment of like, did he make it up the hill? Did did it get crest the hill? Is it going to stay? But then also the wedge shots are going to be really, really fun because you're going to be people that have to lay up. Say you miss the fairway, you're laying up, you lay up into the spot. It's a blind approach with a wedge shot uphill to a green with a massive false front. And it's all short grass. The The USGA, to their credit, actually expanded short grass out on the right to, to make more balls come down. Um, pro- getting it out to where it should be. So, you know, we talked about a narrowing. This is a really good expansion here. And it, it comes right down. It'll come right back down to their feet. So this is a hole that could really, you could see some chaos happen. Um, you could see balls coming down to your feet. Uh, and and I think, um, you know, similar to Tory, that 13th hole, where it has uh-huh. that big it goes, dip. it goes right uphill and you've yeah, got the, it, the awful respunkers on each side but but a cool the bones of a of a cool golf hole there for sure well yeah that it's got that similar thing where that yeah. huge landform really dictates right in there and that's that's kind of the same nature and you saw pros really struggle with that golf hole if uh you know uh, last year at the US Open so in a way it's got some similarities to that hole um and then the 14th hole this hole is going to get a lot of love this week, and it's a, it's a really freaking cool hole. Super striking when you get that shot. It basically jumps up to a ledge 
in the last hundred yards or so of the hole, right? Mm-hmm. It's a big, big jump. I mean, you're talking 30, 40 feet up. Um, it's a narrow tee shot. This is a hole that was, I think, I believe narrowed a little bit. Um, it's a narrow tee shot. If you have any illusions of getting over the hill, which you have to, this, this shot is completely blind and this ledge, you have to get it up to. So you have to get, you have to be able to fly it 500 plus yards to get it up to this top ledge. And if you don't, you're going to be left with like a 200 yard shot ish over a, a ridge completely blind to a tiny little almost punch bully green. I think it would be punch bowl if it was expanded out uh, to its its original size. Um, but it's still a tiny little green. And it's got a tree on the left that kind of blocks you if you're too far left in the fairway. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're too far right, you can be blinded by these bunkers. There's kind of bunkers that that blind you in. So it's a hole that you have to drive the ball. I think that's the thing with both these par fives. What I like about them is you have to find the fairway or else you're going to be presented with a very, very difficult third shot, uh, whether it be you know hitting a long iron into a blind green on the 14th or a really dicey wedge with a severe false front. Yeah. It kind of almost functions like a a great hazard a little bit. It's it's yes. located differently than the classic like Tillinghast great hazard um, where the challenge is really on the second shot you need to carry it. But that's kind of what, what's going on here. Exactly. It's, it's just exactly pushed farther like up the hole. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of separates. It, it has this – it creates a separation between accurate drives and inaccurate drives because in one scenario, you're probably going to be able to get over the hazard and in the other scenario you're going to find it really difficult and then that next shot into the i mean it's just not accommodating to a shot from far out yeah and i think like if you get over the 14th if if you get over that hazard the 14th becomes a birdie hole Mm. if you don't it becomes a i hope i get out of here with a par hole (laughs) yeah Right. And that's really, you know, it really is going to come down to the tee shot. And I think that's a it's a good feature and a good way for men's golf to, you know, especially with where it's at with distance. That's what you have to have to have challenging par fives. The par fives have to be, you know, if you think about the 14th of Pebble Beach, that's another hole that really st- has stood the test of time in terms of a par five. If you don't hit the fairway there, you're you're screwed. You're just like, oh, no. Like, this is really bad. I, you know, I'm going to have to hit this, this 130 yard shot into this tiny little green. You want to be in the fairway so you can push it up close there. Um, all right. Now there are also some kind of so-so holes at the country club. And maybe we could just wrap up by talking generally about what still can be improved about the country club. What do they have left to do and how would it make the course better? Yeah, I think it all comes down to green restoration. Um, you, I think the the golf course in general and where they've actually restored greens makes a lot of sense. Uh, there, there. I think I believe there's twelve or thirteen of the eighteen holes on the championship routing have been restored to their original or close to their original size. 
those greens are far more dynamic than the the non-restored greens. And a perfect example of a non-restored green that you'll see is on the 12th hole, the par four. And I think this one has been the one that screams to me what, what's going on here more so than any other. Um, it is a really great tee shot. And this is where, you know, I think the country club has these highs and lows. You have this tremendous tee shot. It's one of my favorite tee shots. It's blind. It crests over this hill. Um, it's right after the short par three. And you crest over the hill, and then you're hitting to this tiny little uh, uh, oval. And the green, I don't know what they're going to do here. I think the pins, similar to Ada Pebble Beach, might move like two steps left, two steps right here. It's a very severe green. It's benched into a hill, and it's a very small green. Where you see, you know, the opportunity for expansion is obviously in the back of it, but also to the front and to the right. It, it comes down and you see these wonderful chocolate drop structures on the front parts of the green. And right now there's 10 yards of, of, of real rough between the, the front of that, you know, sequence and the front of the green. And you just think this probably used to be green at some point in its life. It, it, or if it wasn't, this would make this hole substantially more because it would bring this really cool feature on the hole into play. You know, it's going to be really rare to see somebody in that chocolate drop area because it would require them to severely miss hit a shot. Because um, the you know, pins you, are all going to be in the center. Yes. That's the thing about green expansion. I mean, I think that the simplistic perspective on green expansion is that it just makes the course easier and we're doing it to make the course easier. But what it actually does, it allows you is it allows you to push the pins out toward the edge, toward the hazards and actually bring the hazards into play. And that's an example yes. of that. And separate great shots. Yeah. You know, the person that takes on the hazard and, and says, I'm going to hit this close to this pin versus especially at the country club where when you have 25 feet, you're often faced with like 10 feet of break and a really dicey putt, a putt you don't want. You don't want to be far from pins at the country club because you're going to have very challenging, hard sloping putts. And that's the thing is when the greens are small, if you hit the green, then you know you're going to have a manageable birdie putt, especially at the 12th hole where it's going to be, you know, that pin's going to be in the center of the green and anywhere you end up like... The biggest thing, the biggest detriment to pros is proximity. You know, the longer the putt, the the more their make percentage goes down. You know, obviously slope has a huge impact on it, but, you know, pros are going to make more eight-footers than they're going to make 15-footers. And, you know, three-putt percentage goes up significantly the longer the putt gets. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So 12th green needs to be expanded. There are a few others as well out there. Yeah. I mean, I think the ninth hole is a, is kind of a downer. Uh, it's, it's the Primrose nine. Uh, there's a pond and I'm not sure what the origins of the pond are, but it just sits right in the landing area. And I think one of the neat, one of the course's neat landforms sits right there. It's got this kind of bulge in the landing area. Um, that's just going to be a, an iron wedge for these guys. Mm. And, I think it would be an interesting, a little bit more intriguing hole if you got rid of that pond. And, you know, probably guys would hit more drivers, but we'd see what would happen. And it wouldn't have this really kind of artificial nature feel to it um, where this pond's just kind of sitting there. And and obviously they probably irrigate from that. And that's important. You need an irrigation pond, but maybe it could be in a different spot or cut back and made deeper. You know, it, it just kind of is a it's an odd 
thing, and it doesn't really. It's a clunky aspect to the routing. I think, um, you know, they have the par, short par five fifth, um, which is going to get a lot of play this uh, the week of the U.S. Open. It's a short par four, but everybody's going to hit driver. I can't foresee an. Uh, you know, one of the things about that hole is that there's no real penalty for going at it. I can't foresee any reason to not go for it. Yeah, it's pretty open as well. There, there aren't like trees around and 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 stuff like that. And the bunkers aren't crazy. Yeah, like the, yeah. None of the bunkers are prescribed like, you know, certain death. Yeah. You know, you're you're gonna make a par probably, and and I think that's one of the things is that it lacks. Um, is it, people are gonna like it because they're gonna see guys hit driver and it's a really good birdie opportunity, but it doesn't really have teeth. It doesn't have a, a and, and that's okay. Holes can be like that. But I would say that it, you know, it it's one of those I I always like how you say, is this a short par four or a long par three? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And if everybody goes for it, then there's really no reason to call it a par four. <laughs> you know, it's just a number on a scorecard at that point. If nobody has any reason not to hit it as far up toward the green as they can then then that's what you're left with and you know to the credit of long par 3s they're great and i think that there should be more of them we don't get to see them very often on the pga tour they can be entertaining in their own rights but i think to call it a short par 4 it needs to have some some other dimensions to it okay so definitely like some things to improve about the country club some ways in which it can get better it's a course that has always had a complicated architectural heritage and development. And so that continues to the present day. But I think it's really cool that we get to see it this year on this stage because it's pretty rare, you know, and, and this is the, the course is in really cool form right now. It should be a lot of fun to watch and the U S open. I mean, I know they're scheduling U S opens far, far out at this point. I'm not sure if they they've scheduled any additional ones for the country club as they have for Pinehurst and Pebble and even Oakland Hills. And so you just don't know when you're going to get to see the country club at a U.S. Open, at a major championship again. And so I think it's a, a good week to kind of soak it up and, and see what you can see at the course. Well, the other thing, it's just like the golf city. It's Boston. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's one of the most important golf cities in, in American golf. And really history. underserved by men's professional golf right now. So it's it's just neat. It's uh, I think that's the the big part of it. It's a great golf city. Um, the fans will be out. They'll be crazy, and the it'll be a really cool atmosphere on one of the most historic venues in uh golf history. It's not just like we always say one of the most historic venues in major championship golf. This was a golf course that was fundamental in the forming and the really the standardization of golf in America. And I think that is a it's just a important thing and a a place that as long as it can host major championships should be a part of the rotation. All right. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. Always fun to talk to you about golf courses. Uh, Should be a fun U.S. Open. Talk to you soon. This episode was edited by Meg Atkins. One more reminder that our Country Club video will be premiering on the Fried Egg YouTube channel on Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Hope to see you there, and thanks for listening.